Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Heart and Soul Broadcasting Services. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today, I'm in conversation with First Mutual Holdings Group Chief Executive, Douglas Horto. Enjoy this truly inspirational conversation. Douglas, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. Thank you. Congratulations on your appointment as uh, uh, onto the board of uh, Rainbow Tourism Group. Well, congratulations for that. Thank you very much. Douglas, you started off as a teacher. Um, uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by that. And I see that uh, you still have a passion for, for education. Talk to me about your journey as a teacher and the passion that you have for education. Thank you, Trevor. I have always enjoyed uh, teaching, especially mathematics. My original training was uh, in mathematics. I spent three years in the university studying mathematics. And uh, in my final year, I was actually a tutor in the university itself. So that's when I started teaching. Right. Then I went to teach at a school. Which, which, was, which school was that? Uh, Hippo Valley in okay. Jerez, which yeah. was introducing A-level mathematics for the first time. And everybody believed it was very difficult. So I, I went there and simplified that. And uh, within the 13 months I stayed there, we managed to get some students to write advanced level and come up with A's in mathematics. What's, what's, when did you discover one, you were good at maths. Well, right from the beginning, Form 1, down there in Mberengwa. We, we went into Form 1. Just Which school did you go to in Mberengwa? It's a Lutheran school called okay. Msume. Mm -hmm. uh, during the ceasefire leading to the independence of this country, right. I went there and we were given a mathematics test in the first term. And I was surprised that I had scored more than 90%. But that was always my interest. Since then, I have excelled in mathematics through to high school, Gurumonzi, to the university, and eventually to do actuarial science. Hmm. What's the trick? I mean, I, I like the fact that they sent you to teach uh, mathematics when they were introducing mathematics to A-level, and you were able to have kids sit down for, for, their, for their exams. What's the trick, do you think, in teaching mathematics? I, I must raise my finger. I'm terrible with numbers. So when I look at people like you, um, I'm amazed. What's the trick in getting people to, uh, to embrace mathematics? The trick is to keep it simple. Many students have a phobia against mathematics. I have a phobia. Because they are told that it's difficult. But if you start at the right time, like Form 1 especially, and the concepts are understood, you build on, on, on top of them until you arrive to the complications that you find in university and beyond. So it's make it simple from the beginning. Is it Form 1? Not, you can't do it lower than that. Well, you could even go in primary school, but there, the, 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 the difficulty is that the primary school teachers are not specialists. I see. They, they are all, teach all the subjects. Yeah. Yes. So I would say that the right level to start is in the Form 1 level. 
Okay. You yeah. don't think there's a case for having specialist teachers for mathematics at, at, at a lower uh, age? I think it could be there. Yeah. Uh, you, you would recall that in the old days, the when there were standards, standard four, five, and six would have subject teachers, but it was through primary school. So I think there could be a case for that. There could be a case for that. The way we are structured now is that uh, our primary schools don't have that, but perhaps you could have a resource teacher mm -hmm. for, for subjects so that they can do the first lessons, introduce the concepts to all peoples in a simplified way. And how, how do you deal with the phobia? People like myself who are terrified and, 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 and I think societal pressure, mathematics is difficult, science is difficult. How, how do you think we can, we can get rid of that? I think we need to make it simple, encourage, especially the slow ones, to succeed mm. in small tasks and then build incrementally. Mm. So what you do is, uh, when I went to teach form one, I got the worst class. I requested for it from the headmaster. Why? And he agreed. Why? Because in during my university years, we, we we were amazed at why people thought maths was so difficult. But the professor told us that you needed to understand it from the very basics in that form 3D, which was where the students didn't want to learn anything. Mm. We were all very keen to learn mathematics. Then I formed the maths club with them and we were doing simple exercises until they started believing that it's not hard to do maths. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And and your passion for education, uh, I know right now you're involved with communities. First of all, talk to us about your involvement with communities around education. What projects are you into? And I want to understand what drives that passion. Okay, I think the my passion for education comes from the fact that as we grew up into the early, in the Rhodesian times and the independence, for many families, a good education was a, straight away out of the poverty. Mm. Mm. It was a no-brainer. Absolutely. Our parents sold their cows to send children to mission schools. And once that succeeded, the family moved the next level. The second thing is that um, in communities, that is the best way of breaking the poverty chain. For example, I have employees, my domestic workers and others, whose kids I have sent to school, and some of them now are holders of invest degrees, and, and, and they are changing from the job that their parents were doing to a totally new life. Mm. And it's very inspiring to do that. Mm. But the missionaries had an even bigger impact on me. When I went to the mission school, soon after the war, or at the end of the war, there were so many orphaned children. I was one of them. And the missionaries had... Uh, a program to ensure that even children whose parents died during the war had to receive an education mm. and they put together funding models for that. And that really inspired me. Mm. So you were orphaned? Yes, during the war. Mm. How old were you? Twelve. What effect has that had on you? Uh, I became very close to my mother mm. because she looked out of me like a mother and father. Mm. Um, and right now, the education uh, programs that you are, you are working on, I know you, you've got big projects that you're working on. What, yes. what are those? Could you just outline them for yes, us? Yes, it varies from community level near our village, where we are supporting the primary school mm -hmm. with the actual refurbishment of the schools, the secondary school with the provision of internet, printers, computers, 
and in the university where I'm now the chairman of the university council yes. and the university of Zimbabwe, yes. dealing with the creating the main power for the country and the introduction of uh, the education 5.0, which is a heritage-based education uh, model, hmm. geared to produce graduates who can produce things for the country. Rather than just academic. Yes, and that's very interesting. Hmm. But I also participate uh, in my job as a, as a funder for education infrastructure. At first mutual group level, we are involved in, right now, breaking ground at the University of Technology for a house for students, which was also about 300, 400 students. Mm -hmm. And we, we believe that that is the way to go building the infrastructure around the education system, schools, colleges, universities. Mm. I also personally got involved in teaching in the university for some time in the National University of Central Technology, where I was teaching actually our science on a part-time basis as a volunteer. Right. Yeah. And um, the, the one question that I really said to myself, uh, Douglas, I need to ask him this question. How did you decide to study actuary? Where, where had you uh, actually? I think actuary, actuaries for me are like um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, nuclear physicists, astrophysicists. Very rare to come to come across. Where did you get the inspiration to study actuary? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I, actually, when I went in the university, I wanted to be a professor of mathematics, hmm. not actuarial science. So we got to know about actuarial science through Mucho who is sponsoring the ah. Mathematics Olympiad, while it's in Form 6. And then they came to invest to offer scholarships, which I declined, actually, myself. Why? Because I didn't want to be an actor. <laughs> I wanted to study mathematics. Right. But a friend of mine, now let, took the scholarship. He went to Mucho and then he said to me, this sounds interesting, you might like it. So when I was now a staff development fellow at UZ, waiting to go into my further studies. I then applied to join Urbucho in the in the totally new gen began. So you 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 didn't pursue your academic ambitions that no, you had I didn't, to be yes, a professor. I changed course. Yeah. And and moved into actual science. Tech, talk to me about that change of course. Because there's a lot of young people watching you right now yes. who face that uh, dilemma of uh, changing courses and sometimes being forced to change courses. I'll tell you my story. When I went to University of Zimbabwe, I was so determined I wanted to study law. I missed law by one point, and uh, I had sleepless nights because all I wanted to do was to be a lawyer. How do you deal with that uh, sudden having to make a choice? Yeah, it's, it's not easy. For me, actually, initially I was fairly confused about it. I was of two minds for a while because I still wanted to pursue my PhD in mathematics. But at the same time, I was interested in the what I was discovering about actuarial science and learning about business. Because in my old degree, I never really learned how to apply mathematics to business. But when I went to Old Mutual, it got very fascinating. So very soon after that, there was also the challenge that the actuarial department recognized passing examinations as a way of going up the career. So I just took that challenge and everything changed. <laughs> Right. What what were you discovering about actuary sciences that made you uh, say this is what I want to do? Yeah. For example, we always knew that people were buying insurance. Do you know how the premium was determined? 
without the money works when it's collected, what do you do with it? So we started learning all those and putting models to it and doing the calculations, proving how it was either not enough or enough. And that got very fascinating. There's a lesson there for me. What then do you say to young people who are watching you right now, facing that dilemma of what to choose? What, 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 what influenced you in terms of your decision-making process? I would say that the most important thing is for them to do what they have passion for in the first place. If you can't do that, find something that you really like rather than something that the society thinks you should do. Because in, in a number of cases, the, even the investment system, we are testing that now. We the end into the investments just about the points you scored. Because we found out that uh, maybe somebody like you who would have done very well as a lawyer, the one point difference should not be so important. Mm. That's why the investors are now saying, interview the people. Don't just look at the points that they scored. There might be something else that is in there, which is not do the points. That's interesting. And we have evidence that shows that uh, somebody has got three A's, somebody has got maybe three C's. You put them together into the program, the other one might end up being better. Mm. Purely out of liking it very much, or hard work, or maturing later in mm. life. Mm. So I think that the, we should not have a fixed mind. This is why I think that uh, in some programs, there's need for a general program in the first two years before people specialize. Before people find their way yes. and make up their minds they, what they, they want must, to do. They must have a chance to explore. Have, yes. It's one of the controversial issues in the university about the medical school, actually where we the new curriculum suggests that it's not proper to think that an 18-year-old has already decided to become a doctor. But maybe if they do a science-based medical degree, after four years, they may be mature enough to choose what they want to become. Isn't that the concept around the gap year? That the gap year allows you to well, find yourself, as it were, mature, as it were? Yes, partly. The gap year helps certainly in that because you are faced with some real-life situations. But also in other places in the world, they don't normally allow people to specialize before they are in their third or fourth yes. year to leave it open for them to find what they really like mm. as they are in the first year, especially in the second year. Mm. Talk to me now, um, uh, Douglas, about the actuar actuary sciences. How many actuaries, first of all, do we have in the country? And are you happy with where we are as a country when it comes to actuary sciences? Yeah, I think, we, we, uh, well, the, actu the Zimbabwean actuaries operating in Zimbabwe are probably 15, 20. 15, 20. But Zimbabwean actuaries globally exceed 100. Wow. Maybe 150. Most of them are in South Africa, UK, Australia, Canada. So in terms of that for our country size, I think we're punching above our weight. Oh, really? Yes, because you find that a big country like South Africa probably is 1,500 actuaries, the UK 5,000 and mm. so on. Mm. So we, we are actually punching above we're our weight. We're doing well. Yes. Uh, in terms of actuarial trainees, we have much more. How many do we have? I would not give the numbers off yet, okay. but maybe twice the number of actuaries, if not more. At my place, we have at least six, seven actual trainees mm -hmm. and two and three actuaries, including myself, mm. if I count myself <laughs> as one of them. So I think we are doing well there. What we are having now is the challenge of employment opportunities for them mm. in the market because most of them were geared to deal with long-term insurance 
which is uh, which has had a difficulty because of hyperinflation in the country, and uh, they tend to leave one they reach a certain level. My daughter, who is who is one of them, also left. Uh, they 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 go they tend, they are very marketable. It's an international qualification, yeah. so they move out of the country to other parts of the world. But I think we are doing well. We have two degree programs in computer science in the country. The premier one is at NAST, that takes the cream of the cream. Only fifteen to twenty students a year. Wow. They use it as a much more open program. They, they take a full class as we know them, so that those two universities are offering computer science degrees. Which is good for a kind of our size. Explain to viewers that are watching us right now all over the world the value addition that an actuary does for the country and for the company that they worked, they worked okay. for. Uh, the motto of the Institute of Actuaries says making financial sense of the future. <laughs> right. That is the motto of the Institute of Actuaries. So the value addition by the actuaries is around their data analytics. And putting together models that predict what is likely to happen in the future, hmm. so they are found in pricing. How do you arrive at wow. the cost of an insurance product? Why is your car being charged twenty dollars a month? Why is your life being charged forty dollars a month? How much money do you need to set aside if the caliber power station is burned by a fire hmm. to rebuild it? Hmm. That is called reserving. So that is what they do. But the of late, actually, they've moved into what are called wider fields. They're involved in banking, they're involved in construction, because the the core of actuarial training is modeling risk and anticipating it so that you can mitigate it. Mm. So you'll be saying, if we are doing this project, what are the likely pitfalls? What is the chance or the probability of this happening? And how do we prepare for it? How do we set aside money? Mm. How do we set aside a different plan? In the, in, in the plan B around that, that's the value add. Mm -hmm. So let me go back to who Douglas is. So you left the University of Zimbabwe, uh, wanted to do a staff development, then you ended up with Old Mutual. Yes. You stayed with Old Mutual for quite some time. Yes. Uh, for nine years, nine years, 10 years? Yeah, almost 10. Talk to me about that period of your life with Old Mutual and, and your rising within yeah, Old Mutual. Yeah, I regard that as the formative stage of my career even as it is today. But it was my first time to, first of all, to deal with a big business like Old Mutual. And they did a lot of training programs that, that were well established. So I cut my teeth there in terms of one, passing the exams, two, learning about the work. And finally, learning that you need to know how to deal with others who are not of your training. <laughs> because one of the issues we faced as actuaries was that we we were highly regarded, but we were also very inward-looking. But during the period, I learned to try and understand what how others look at what we are doing. And the senior people that I worked for, the particular one, Mr. Stan Leslie, who was from South Africa, who started taking me to clients, is the one who taught me that whatever you know won't be valuable unless your clients understand it. So that's where I learned to simplify the actual science to a point where somebody is not an actual it also understand it. So you are, uh, we look at you as precious actuary scientists. Uh, what do you call actuaries? Yes. And but you look at us as as also strange people, and you you had to find a way of how do you deal with these people? Yes. How do you add value to what they want? For example, we 
we're doing pension funds, there's an employer with a pension fund. We ask them to pay so much percent of their salary into the fund, but you want to relate to their business because they take money from their business. Mm. So when you do the actuarial evaluation and you talk to them, it must also talk to their business situation mm. so that your recommendations are in line with them remaining in business and continuing to be your clients. Mm. If you if you went and asked them to do the impossible things, they would either stop the pension fund or they would get out of business on the basis of your advice. Mm. So that's what I learned that uh, we were not alone in Ireland. Mm. We were dealing with everyday life that affects people. And for members of our clients, they don't care what you do behind the scenes. All they know is that they are putting money into a pension fund and they want to receive a pension when they retire. Mm. And you must be able to talk. It's them. a complex industry. Yes, but the people who receive the end product don't need the complication. They just need to know that this is what they've put in, this is what they are getting out, mm. and why. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You, you said something which is powerful there, uh, Douglas, which is that you, you cut your teeth uh, at all mutual and that uh, a lot of what you are right now comes from that. Anything else that Old Mutual taught you, the way Old Mutual does business, the way it yes, molded you? I, I, I was fortunate enough to be one of the first ones to be chosen to go and work in Cape Town in the then Old Mutual headquarters. Yeah. And I'd never seen such a big big place in terms of business, the way the company is 7,000 employees all coming to work at the same time in the logistics and the decision-making. And I was lucky to rub shoulders with the top actuaries of the world mm. and learned that they were, while this old was very dominant, they were they were competing with the likes of Sunlam, Liberty, Momentum. So we had to fight for our place mm. as an organization. And also to look at the culture, which was very different. And it was the time that the South Africa was getting independence and we I had better insights of the black culture than some of my white colleagues. So we took them through that also to understand that they, we could extend the products to the to the newly liberated society of South Africa. Right. So that was a very enriching experience. I also had the opportunity to attend university at the University of Cape Town. Right. Uh, and met some of the key professors in actuarial science at UCT personally. We used to read about them, but I took that opportunity to meet them and sit in their class and learn what they were teaching. What was this for, for your actuary qualification? For, for one of the exams. Okay. Yes, general insurance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I went to the UCT during that period. Douglas, is there a particular character trait um, for one to become an actuary? An actuary. I think the main thing is the actuary exams, they are very demanding. So you need that enduring character to write the 16, 17 exams. You need to become a fellow. It's a lot easier these days if you go through the right invest program, mm -hmm. you get a number of exemptions, but you still have to write the final exams in that that insurance matters which which is the right uh, program that you you would recommend to the young ones looking at you now um the, the in Zimbabwe is the national Defense of science and technology it covers all the technical core subjects 
in South Africa, in the West of Cape Town, in the West of Witwatersrand, right. cover much more than what we, what we do here. So okay. that would be a right program. Okay. Yeah. So up, you, you spend nine years with Old Mutual. You learn, you go to Cape Town. What, what else did you, where did you go after Old Mutual? Okay. When I left Old Mutual, I joined First Mutual Life Assurance Society then is the head of actuarial and business development. And uh, I took them through the demutualization of First Mutual mm. because I had experienced the demutualization at Old Mutual. So I had a template of it. So we demutualized uh, First Mutual and listed it on the stock exchange. And I became the managing director of First Mutual Life Assurance Company, which was now the subsidiary of First Mutual Limited, mm. which was the listed entity. Talk, talk to us through, because I remember demutualization yes. yeah, um, of, of First Mutual. Talk to us as briefly as possible about that experience. Uh, you had done it at Old Mutual. You come to First Mutual and you get to do it. What, what, what did it entail? What is it all about? What is demutualization? Yeah. Well, previously, life companies were like clubs. So they were owned by the policyholders. So the demutualization was a process of separating clients from owners. So the initial owners were the same as the clients. So they were given their shares or their money. And then investors came in to invest, to take on the ownership side of the business and the policyholders continued as clients of the new entity. Mm. So you, you, you come in and you're in, you're in charge of um, uh, the actuary and, and business, business development. Yes. What was your next step after that? Yeah, we, I, I, I took the view that in order to grow this mutual group size, we needed to form new companies. So we formed, I led the formation of Trista Insurance in the formation of first mutual insurance mm -hmm. under the business development. Those were my projects. And we set up those companies. The first mutual insurance is still there today. TriStar was made with Nikos Diamond recently. Yeah. But it's, it's one of the things that I started. And and Nikos Diamond falls under you, isn't it? Yes. Uh, you own it 100%? Yes. Okay. And and the in terms of, um, that's a fascinating experience of of building new businesses talk to us about the lessons learned in that experience yeah the key lesson was that uh, it takes time for a business to become profitable and uh, as the business developer i had to convince my boss that mr sajkoni norman yes that uh, it would take us two to three years for an insurance company to start making a profit and he, he was able to understand it and support that in, in, and again, the lessons learned is that when the when there was corporate action on First Mutual Limited, and there were new shareholders coming on board, they wanted to the new businesses to make a profit in a few months. And I said that was not possible personally because that, that from my understanding in actuarial science and the business modeling, that was not a, a way forward because it it would not be based on solid business foundation. Is that why you left uh, all, uh, First Mutual? Yeah, that was one of the reasons why I left. Uh, because the... Uh, is I just, that is 2005, 2006. 2006, eh? 2006 yeah? I had just been to London Business School to do the senior executive program. And uh, I came back very feeling very transformed and wanted to chart a very strong growth agenda. But at the same time, there was corporate action on the business and the shareholding changed. So the new shareholders 
we would expect, I think, a limited understanding of the business, but they were very strong-willed and wanted to do certain things that I could not do as the chief executive officer. And we agreed that um, in that instance, the owners have their way, so I had to leave. But but we had a, a nearly amicable okay. separation in that I understood that uh, I would not succeed as a CEO without the support of the shareholders. Mm. So I left, but I advised them not to to do what I would not have done. But they didn't take your advice. Yes. When you look back now, do you think your advice was your advice? Yes, has, I actually I was quite specific. I said, if you do what you want to do, you will not last for five years. And that came to pass. Hmm. I gave them the strategy that we had. Because I said, I'm leaving, but I don't want you to come and think that there was no strategy. This is the strategy. If you don't like it, it's fine. But this is what we're trying to do. Hmm. If you do something very different from this, at this stage of this business, it's not likely to succeed. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. Well, what lessons did you learn from, from that? I mean, for, for us... I learned uh, from a leadership point of view that uh, the shareholders in management must see the strategy in a similar way. If you don't have that meeting of minds, businesses can't succeed. Mm. That is the lesson. And secondly, that management can only work if the the shareholders support them. The fight between management and shareholders is unnecessary. I've seen it happen in many corporates. It normally, for listed companies, it's harmful to minority shareholders. Because they're just caught up in the fight mm -hmm. that is nothing to do with them. It mm -hmm. destroys value. So if it's for me, I would not be part of the management fighting to destroy value. I would say, if we can't agree, someone must give in and let the government carry forward. So the lesson is that the business is bigger than everybody else. It must be allowed to grow, mm. particularly if it's a listed company. But in this instance, Douglas, was value not destroyed when you had gone, when you were not listened to? Yes, I was hoping. Did, did, did Douglas not have a responsibility to ensure that value is not... Uh, yeah, that's a tricky question. Yeah. You, you can say that you should afford it to protect the other people, the value of the of the minority shareholders. That school of thought could work, but maybe the fight could have created a worse mm -hmm. outcome. Sure. So we don't know. But in hindsight, one can say that perhaps if we had fought one, we would have mm -hmm. preserved more value. Because when we when we came back a few years later, the thing was very different. Very different. Yes. We had to rebuild, mm -hmm. go back. So talk to me, where, where did you go up? Uh, I moved into consulting. I became a consulting actuary. Okay. Uh, initially, I was based in Jobek, but I was doing business in Zambia, Mozambique, and Angola. How was that? Very interesting stuff. And then I hooked up with Altfin Group. They, they approached me. We, initially, I was advising on starting a life company. But they just want insurance yeah, business. Yeah, so, but for Farai Rodzi and uh, yeah, and Tim, and Tim, yes, yes, they we had very good. We still have good relationship after now. We, I, I, I said to them, their business was a bit small for me to have a full time job there initially, but I would be consulted. So I then set up Altfin Life, and Altfin Health is now Bon V. Mm. I founded those businesses from scratch. Wow, and uh, we ran that for some time. 
until 2011 when Fesmut was nearly collapsing and the government intervened through NASA. The then Minister of Finance, Chendaibiti, who I went to school with, by the way, at Gormans, asked me if I could be willing to come back to Fesmutua because the government was not keen to see Fesmutua collapsing given what had happened. So I agreed, provided the other guys would not be there, but they refused to work with me. So uh, when Minister Tendaibit is talking to you, has uh, NASA already put in their no, they were, they were having their discussions, they yeah. that, but I think the government was saying they need a chief executive office mm. that they can believe it for the NASA to put money into mm. the business. Mm. And uh, of course, one of my colleagues, Nelson Chagodo, the chairman of NASA. Mm. So we're having that kind of discussion. Right. Yeah. It, it, talk to me about what you, you go away and like you're saying, you come back. It's almost a collapsing business. Yes. For us standing outside and watching this, it's, it's like watching a, a, a train smash of some sort. What went wrong? I think what went wrong was simply that the the governance fell apart. Hmm. Where shareholders must play their part, the board must play its part, and management. the management must play its part. So all that was infused into one entity. And the consequences? The consequence was that there was a loss uh, of value for the policyholders. When we went in, it was about 15 million years. Yeah. The whole was there. Where had that man gone, gone to? <laughs> God knows where that went. Because we were never able to see, but that's a lot of money, fifteen million dollars. Yeah, about. That so way. you start rebuilding. Talk to so, us about what what were the key uh, uh, building blocks of this rebuilding from this I fifteen the, million home. The first thing was to get a shareholder who would inject capital, which was NASA. The second thing was to restore the confidence of the clients and the regulators. When the regulators were up in arms. They were pushing mm. for, for compliance and to restore the confidence of the staff. Everybody was very afraid of what was going on. So my re-entry strategy was that we need to have an honest conversation and let's accept where we are before we define where we want to go. Mm. So it was a two-pronged approach. The shareholders agreed to put capital so we did a raise offer and raise eight and a half million dollars to put into the business. Right. To fund the subsidiaries that were bleeding. Mm. And then we we said those that were making profit would also be used to cover the whole. So the shareholders went for three years without a dividend. Because mm. we were covering the whole. It's a big hole. Yes. And then the employees we need to restore confidence. The normal thing that happens is in organization, people must be free to say what they think. You don't have to agree, but at least you must say what they think. It's fascinating, Douglas, what fear does. Yeah. But also how we easily succumb to authority and and compromise on principles in a in a in a in a company. That must have been it couldn't have been easy. Turning that around. No, it wasn't. Uh, there was, w w when I entered the building for the first time, you can see that people are gossiping. 
Ashton's no open conversation. We took a long time to create an open conversation system. How do you do that? Because this is a trust issue. It's a trust yeah, deficit. It, 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 it starts from the top. You must stick to what you what you said, what you do must be aligned. aligned. Rather than what you say is different from what you do. Mm. So the first thing is that the ordinary employees must trust what you are doing. You're not trying to, end, to help yourself to everything in the company. It's transparent. Your wife or your nephew is not the one who is cooking the lunch and all that kind of stuff. Simple things like that. They restore the confidence. Mm. Yeah. But apart from the culture, what else did you find difficult to uh, to turn around? The like, financial discipline okay. was one of the issues. Everybody thinks that there's an opportunity to do a deal. So the business is paying much more for the goods and services. So we had to remove many people from the pro- procurement department because we caught them with hands in the team. Hmm. This cup costs five dollars. They want to buy it for seven dollars because they are going to make uh, two dollars. <laughs> yes, in the process yes. along the way, mm. or things never come because the choosing supplier has no capacity. You buy computers; they take three months or four months to come because the person who is with the deal is not competent. Mm. Yeah, all it's, that is connected but not competent. Yes, all that needed to change. Mm. Mm. So, Douglas, given the fact that you are your You've been in three places. Um, first mutual, mm-hmm. um, as 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 you try to build it, mm-hmm. and then a new shareholding comes in. Then there's a gap, and where you are right now. When you look back, what are the most the precious lessons that uh, that 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 this whole season has taught you? Yeah, when I look at it, I think uh, is that leadership. The failure or success of the of anything, whether it's a family or a business, there is squarely on the shoulders of the leaders. Mm. Don't look anywhere else. Mm. So, a poor leadership results in a tragic failure of mm. institutions, whether mm. it's government, corporate, family, church. So the lesson is that leaders must be authentic. Followers are volunteers. They will follow you voluntarily if you are doing the right things. And they must be included. You need an inclusive approach so that everybody belongs. Whether it's the rewards, whether it's the punishment, whether it's the risks, there must be an inclusive approach. And communication with the stakeholders is at the center of that. Mm. Mm. Wow. So you you've... You have come back, and over the years, you have built an amazing business. Walk us through what First Mutual looks like right now. Okay, today, uh, First Mutual is, uh, by the way, by last year, it became the biggest insurance company by premium income in Zimbabwe. Wow. On the 2021 numbers. That's what it has become. Wow. It's in every aspect of insurance, from life that is well known about it, the original business, to health, to general insurance, to reinsurance. Property? Yes, property, microfinance, asset management, funeral services. Clinics? Yes. Pharmacies? Health services, yes. And it's now a regional player. 
with the business in Botswana, uh, which has just raised 61 million plus capital in Botswana, some of which came to Zimbabwe, 21 million is in Zim, 40 million is in Botswana, is in Mozambique. By corporate action of Nikos Diamond, we acquired Diamond Seguros in Mozambique, which when we ended with 24% shareholder capital, we capitalized it one and a half million US dollars, and we are now earning 72% of it. And you are now the biggest player in that sector, am I right? Yes. In Mozambique. Yes, and then we have an associate company in Malawi. So that's what we are, that's the architecture that we have today. Hmm. And so we are proud of our regional investment in Botswana. In the Reserve Bank in this we are one of the few companies that is bringing back a dividend every year to the country in management fees. The senior management leaves here in Zimbabwe, except the one who is directly running that business. And that's how that's the model that we want to take into Africa. We believe that we should be a SADAC business in a big way. And the opportunities are coming through to us as we as we speak today. Just SADAC? Not beyond? Initially. I think it's a it's a if you look at our vision, some of our business want to be biggest in their sectors in Africa, mm. but we do it in bytes, mm. which we call step functions mm. from a mathematical perspective. So for the time being, we are looking at SADAC and Comesa, mm. the region. Mm. Uh, that's the five-year planning period. We would, we would like to create some important presence there. Mm. And when, when you look at, um, how long is it taken to do this? Uh, ten years since I came back. Ten years. Yeah. When when you look at it, which which, what is it that you're most proud about? Proud of rather. I'm proud of the culture that we have set up, where there is a very open, open system. We live our values, mm -hmm. and we talk about economic dignity as a core theme of what we do, and that applies. We start at home on the home turf. Shirtly mm. begins at home. So mm. our employees understand that thoroughly. Mm. I meet them regularly myself. The workers' committee, they have a regular meeting with the CEO in the boardroom. They mm. say what they think. Nobody's threatened. Mm -hmm. So that to me is the most important thing. The second thing is to understand how to create value. See, one plus one must become three. So we, everybody has seen that what the key performance indicators are, how do we measure our performance? If we're not doing well, we all know it, so there are no surprises. Mm. The, the rewards, the bonuses, whatever, they are also related to the same thing. Then from the shareholders, the, we've done lots of investments without calling for capital. All these projects that we are doing, we've not gone back to say, can you use some more money? We are using the trade earnings. Mm to develop the business. Some of them don't like it because they want a higher dividend, but we've explained them that if we give you a higher dividend now. So I think we are, we have reached a consensus around that. Mm. I, I see that NASA, NASA has sold, eh? they're now down to 35%. Yes, the, and CBZ the is coming, CBZ, coming yes. in. And, and I hear talk of delisting, is that is that um, a market rumor? Is there any truth to that? No, that was actually said by CBZ. Okay. So that can be a room. They okay. said it publicly. All right. We look at it slightly differently. We believe that... Uh, As management. Yes. 
even as the board. Okay. We believe that uh, those things should happen by the demands of the business. Okay. Not to start from the end. Okay. Yeah. So, but we don't have a problem with if that becomes the shareholders. Uh, no. Yeah. Shareholders. Can, yeah. If that becomes a strategic okay. imperative. Yeah. Yes. At this point in time, we believe that uh, because of the preponderance of the shareholders in first mutual holdings, it might not be a great idea to delist it soon. Mm. But uh, if that becomes necessary, you need a whole chest of money to pay the minorities. Because we have 80,000 shareholders, mm. who are the policyholders who receive their free shares of demutualization. Mm. So delisting it is not as straightforward as it looks like. Mm. But that was said, it's a fact, it yeah. came out. Yeah. Uh, we also think that the that will be a process, not an event. Yeah. Yeah. But perhaps I should talk more about what what we think about that transaction. Absolutely. Yes, please. We I'm one of the proponents of that transaction. Okay. In the sense that what you need if you're developing an economy, you need a strong insurance group and a strong bank to deal with developing the country. If you look at South Africa, the very strong insurance companies. So here you need we already have all which was big. You need another big insurance company. Yeah. Mm. If the if those companies they mobilize the resources through mm. premiums and they have a bank to now implement the project, you create a lot of leverage. Mm. So this is a deliberate strategy of yes, building it is. a big uh, is. insurance company. It is. Yeah. It is. And we believe that uh, it will help to create more customers for us as well. Mm. Because it's a self-serving. The more business you find, the more they come to do business with you. Mm. Yeah. Imagine getting free access to the Newsday, the Standard, the Zimbabwe Independent, and the Weekly Digest for a full month. Well, you can. And all you need to do is download the Newsday e-reader app on Google Play Store or scan the Newsday QR code in any of the AMH print publications and start enjoying the quality content. Douglas, I'm going to take advantage of uh, having you uh, an, an, an actuary to explain to us. Um, there's a lot of talk around, a lot of chat around uh, the gold coin um, that has been in, introduced. What's what's your understanding, and how how do you think we should be looking at it? At it? Is it an instrument that can help us deal with? Uh, uh, inflation and uh, uh, erosion of value as far as the investors uh, and the market generally is concerned? Yes, thank you. I believe so. I will start with the where I'm more comfortable, which is my workplace. The pension funds that are contributing have another asset class which they didn't have. So mm. just uh, to advise you that we applied for about $100 million worth of gold coins. Mm the first day. We believe that that will be a store of value uh, because over the years, 500 years of used gold is outperformed mm. all currencies. Mm. So certainly from that point of view. But there is the other side of the coin in that the ordinary citizens can't afford gold coins. The smallest unit of trading is too high for an average bank mm. at 1,800 US dollars. 
or 800,000 ZIM dollars in the offshore exchange rate. Mm. So it looks like an elitist product, mm. excluding the poor. But the positive side is that uh, it can suck out the excess ZIM dollar liquidity from the market to, to, to minimize the chasing of the US dollars in terms mm. of pushing the parallel market rate. Mm. That is my belief. But you are leaving out the small player. Yes. Because it's not is the small player not contributing to the black market rate? No. They are, but they contribute in a small way. Yeah. What happens is for the black market rate to move a lot, you need billions of dollars in the market mm. chasing mm. a small number of US dollars. So if the small players are looking for US dollars, yes, they push the rate, but not that much. Mm. So you buy, you've applied for how many millions? You 100 said? million. 100 million. So you buy them, what then do you do? Explain to us. We, we, we store them uh, with a custodian. We can't do anything with them for six months, because you can't trade them in the first six months. But we revalue them. What happens is, let's say the exchange rate moves from 400 to 500. The value of your old gold coin also moves mm -hmm. with that if it's if you are valuing zip dollars, mm -hmm. and then if the price of gold goes up, the real price of gold, the the value of the gold coin goes up, mm -hmm. and so in terms of pension funds and insurance companies, they are also a prescribed asset, which helps us with compliance with the law of government mm -hmm. to buy certain assets prescribed. But more importantly, what it means that at the time that you are now wanting to receive your benefit. If you are invested in gold coins, you get the value of the day that you get your benefit, mm. as opposed to keeping cash mm. in Zim dollars, which will be losing value. Mm. Is is one uh, is it the right thing to do that you can't trade uh, in six months and and it's got all these laws around it? Should it not be up to the market to determine that? I think that? it's too complicated, if you yeah. ask me. Uh, and that is what creates some skepticism around Indeed. it from the market's point of view. I would have said, yeah, you can do whatever you want with it. it, it that's for me the thing. Uh, is it because out of habit we have these statutory instruments uh, and yeah. laws and so forth? Why don't you allow the market to yeah. find its level? Yeah, that's true. I think that one of the things that I said, and I said in this interview, is that. Uh, Confidence can't be prescribed by a statutory instrument. Yeah. It must be earned by our actual behavior in the marketplace rather than by a law. Yeah. So I would rather, the idea is great, but I would rather we let the market deal with it Absolutely. once it's there. Yeah. That would be my view. Because I want you to push back that as much as possible on this point, because the it, it then feeds the public suspicion that Ah, they went around and set and came up with this this idea. It's elitist. It's intended for so and so. In, instead of killing that by conducting and behaving in a manner that gives confidence, there's the opposite. Yeah. Well, gold coins are not new, so the all countries have got gold coins, by the way. Sure. But nearest to us is the Krugerrand. So there's one-tenth of it, which would be, in our case, maybe $180. More people would afford it. So it's possible to create smaller gold coins. Mm. And I would think that along the way, if we are going to use gold as part of the assets to store value, we need to have smaller denominations of the gold okay. coin. A tenth of a troy ounce, or even a twentieth. To allow more participation. Which will cost $90. Yeah. Anybody can buy it. Mm. In, they can trade among themselves. Mm.
I think that will improve it. It's liquidity. Mm. But also, the more rules you have, the, the less trust you create with the, with the people. So and 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 yet, um, uh, Douglas, that's one thing that we desperately need right now: trust. Mm-hmm. There's a huge uh, public trust deficit, and one would have thought that the, the, our government would conduct itself in a manner that recognizes that there's that uh, gap. Yes, and we shouldn't be um, expanding the gap but closing the gap so that like you said you you end trust through the way you yeah. you, you, you am yeah. I right there yes 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 you're right in fact I often say that the the problem is about is not the exchange rate because there's no shortage of US dollars in Zimbabwe. the problem is the confidence mm. in policy positions and and that's what we need to cure mm. Can that be cured, given where we are? Yes, I'm, I'm an optimist. I believe that uh, if we reduce the rules of engagement, mm. and uh, like with the gold coin, such a great idea. Let's have less rules around it. I'm happy that uh, listening to players in the week that it was introduced, which is last week, the parallel market was actually slowing down because a lot of money went to the gold coins. Mm. Uh, hopefully, if more gold coins come and the rules of dealing in them are made less complicated, people will actually want to store their value in gold mm. coins because gold has outperformed US dollars over the years. Mm. And in fact, there's currently, because of the war in, in Russia and Ukraine, a US dollar inflation. So, whereas for most Zimbabweans, they don't know that US dollars are actually losing value because of inflation by keeping them under the pill. Mm. What you hear is one dollar now is now worth 90 cents, mm. a 10% mm. per annum inflation. So, I think that um, if we allow the gold coins to, 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 to stay in the law that says if you borrow in US dollars, you pay in US dollars. It, Minister Mtulingwe was trying to hardwire that into, into into the Finance Act. If that happens, we might slowly begin to see the building mm. of trust. It's not easy. I did commission a research uh, through First Mutual Wealth, our economists, and there's evidence that uh, countries that have dollarized officially, like what Zimbabwe did in 2009, that have gone back to de-dollarization are only very few in the world. Absolutely. The only one that we know of that succeeded is Israel. Mm. So it's not a walk in the park. It will take time for people to to actually walk away from believing in US dollars. And we need to be alive to that. Yes, I think that's a reality. In, 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 in a way, I think the government has accepted it, but as politicians, they will not go on top mm. of the drama and say this. But the mere fact that the government is paying its employees in US dollars is a clear admission of the same. The, the 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 other point where I'm going to take advantage of you here, you used to be chair of uh, Zimstat, and the the the, sen- the the preliminary census results have just been released, and one disconcerting thing again, the issue of trust comes in. You're seeing certain political players and certain activists questioning uh, the authenticity of those numbers, and it's not good at all. Um, what's your view as having been the former chairman of uh, uh, chairman of uh, Zimstat, uh, Douglas? Yes, I chaired Zimstat and I conducted the 2012 census as the chairman of Zimstat. 
I think the biggest issue with the Zimbabweans and political parties in particular that until there's an election, they don't read the census documents. So between 2012 and 2022, the first of all, what do I think of it? I think the census is accurate because people are counted by humanitarians. You can't do anything about that. Mm. But what you believe politically and what maybe on the ground can be different. So I think the numbers are fine in terms of the population. The second thing is that the rural urban migration, which 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 the opposition parties tend to think about a lot, mm. is actually happening. Even in the current census figures, in 2012, 68% of the population was regarded as rural. Now it's 62%. Mm. So there's a, a, a whole 7% movement into, into the, urban areas. Yes. Which is consistent with what we are seeing with our own eyes. Yeah. Then there's the issue of the regions of the country. The way some of the regions feel that their population is being mm. deliberately understated, but I will be surprised by that because the counting just happens. Mm. But more importantly, is that the delimitation of constituencies will then favor raw areas mm. by just the proportion of the of the of the of the of the, of the population. So if you say 62% of 210, which is the number of constituencies. More than half of the those constituencies are in rural areas. Mm. In about 38, say 40% is in urban areas. So it already creates a, a problem mm. on the election front because the ruling party has been showing a lot of strength in the, in rural, the rural areas, areas, which gives it a free majority, if you like, mm. for whatever reason. So, however, in 2017, there is the inter demographic survey, which looks again at the population on a smaller symbol. It showed that trend that there were people moving, moving to from rural to urban. Yeah. Now, the next thing is, are all the urban population eligible to vote or not? Mm. Most of them don't have an address. It's more difficult to vote in the urban areas than the rural areas. Mm. So the population in the urban areas may not even represent the voters that are available there. Whereas in the village, your crow can register you to vote. Yeah. You yeah. don't need to proof of residence. How, how do we deal with that trust issue around our statistics? Yeah, difficult question. I think the Zimstad must engage all stakeholders. Mm. They must be open about it. Mm. We, at some stage, we, you may recall that the minister told us not to publish yes. monthly inflation, inflation yeah. numbers. We went to meet with him, very good meeting, and we suggested to him that it would not be great for confidence. And he agreed. What are you hiding? Is what yes. the public is yeah. going to so say. So I think it's more about yeah. that engagement. Yeah. yeah. And the, the stakeholders talking to Zimstad, mm. some of them just come in not knowing. Mm. But they will assume that Harare, for example, is half of Zimbabwe. Or oh, Blawa, you can't have only 400,000 people. I saw that the mayor of Blawa was questioning the census, actually. In That's one the of, thing. In one of the yeah. papers. So one wonders how you do it. Because generally what happens is people are counted by one of the things why you must go to create confidence in the, in the census and with that problem to the twelve when they secured to count people and we refused. You recall that? Yes, I do. We delayed the census by two days. 
until we had a meeting in the cabinet boardroom and it was concluded that the system must be done by civil servants. Teachers, Maduneni, local government. So the census is done by local people. So if you're in Makokova, you're counted by somebody mm. who's teaching at that school nearby. So mm. they can't lie about the people that are there. They know their households, they know each other. But there is a fear in this country, especially around the involvement of the security personnel in those things. Yeah. But by and like Zimstad has stayed away from professional. They've stayed away from having the security people counting mm. civilians. Mm. They count each other in the condominium areas. That's the agreement. But civilians must be counted by, by fellow civilians. civilians. Yeah. yeah. So so that you can get a result that is seen as credible. Mm. So I think the main drawback is that the increase in the urban population is not the result in the increase in the number of urban voters. Yeah. And there are various reasons for that. Most of which is that the urban voters, it's a struggle to register as a voter in the urban area. Identity documents, addresses, yeah, and the all that. The particular kind of one is that you need to have a proof of residence. Mm, yeah. Let's leave that and move on. Well, not exactly leaving that, uh, uh, Douglas, because in the 2018 election petition, you participated uh, in sharing a mathematical perspective uh, when the election results were being contested. Talk to us briefly about what your role was in that and okay. your, your thinking. Yeah, thank you for that. Actually, the the lawyers who were representing the defendant, in other words, the, the president, mm. were confronted with a statistical document prepared by one Kenyan statistics on behalf of the plaintiff, which made which drew several conclusions. And they asked me to read it. Okay. And when I read it, I found that the using their own facts, the conclusions were misplaced. Okay. That's the only role that I played. So I, I didn't put any data to it. I see. I simply interpreted their own data which they had. Uh-huh. But the 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 interpretation was biased in that they were not following the facts. So if you if you see my affidavit, I said I'm not commenting on whether the election was free and fair. Okay, but that was not my the, my purview, or whether the media was covering all parties equally. The kind of thing that they were raising. Mm. Was I said once you voted, the only thing that remains to say of the yeah. votes that were cast, mm. did someone get fifty percent plus the proverbial one vote? Mm. Mm. That was <laughs> that, that was my comment. I, I, I hear you. So what happened is that then was they they were alleging that in every constituency. When the president got more votes than the MPs, it was for ZPF. Mm. But in the constitution that they chose, which I analyzed, that was applied to both parties. Because generally the president is more popular than the individual party members from their supporters. Mm. So that was actually a clearly false conclusion from the fact they had compiled themselves. I see. And the next thing they made an interesting claim, which I thought was an on go. And I can talk about it. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Well, they said that these two parties have strongholds. The one in the rural and the one in the urban. For each one in each stronghold, it can get between 65 to 70% of the votes. And then 35 to 40% in the East Week area. So once you've already said that, and you say the population is 68% in the rural areas. You are giving the part with the raw stronghold a majority by mathematical calculation. Mm-hmm. But they said that and then forgot that, that they were having an on goal. 
So I say this, we agree with this. And if you do the math on their basis, you will say 68% times 65%. That will give you about 40-something percent. And then you say 35% times 30% to give you about 12%. So you're already in the 52% mark mm. for this one part. Mm. And in the 40-something percent. And the numbers were nearly like that when you put them together. Mm. So they were confirming the numbers but using a wrong interpretation mm. of that. So that is the problem that happened. Uh, what motivated me to, but to give that... I was disappointed by the fact that uh, in matters of national importance, like an election, we chose to invite somebody else who's not in Zimbabwe to analyze our figures, and therefore they did not even understand what they were analyzing. <laughs> That's a big one. That's yeah, a they big should one. have. I would have thought that they would have looked for a local person mm. who understood what mm. our census says, mm. how the voting patterns are. That person would have clearly seen that this interpretation of it. Mm. Is different from what you find in Nairobi, mm. which is what they done in Kenya successfully. Mm. They tried to apply that here, and it didn't work. Douglas, you are a fascinating uh, person, interesting, interesting mind. I, I want to zero in now on what, what are your leadership principles and your leadership uh, habits? Okay, I think the first one is that uh, followers are volunteers. Mm -hmm. They follow you voluntarily because they believe in what you are doing. You are authentic. Mm. So that is the core. Mm. The second one is that uh, communicate. It's better to over-communicate than to under-communicate. Mm. And finally, one needs to have a, a sense of natural justice in leadership. Mm. Mm. And, and, and as... as um, very impressive work that you've done with First Mutual uh, Holdings. Can you be vulnerable? Have you ever failed? And where have you failed? And yes. What has failure taught you? Yes. Uh, not everything has been rosy. We have things that we have not done well. Even in the in this, the success that you said, First Mutual. Yeah. It's just that there are more moments of success than moments of failure. But right. it's a mixture of both success and failure. Right. So yes, I think one of the main main, main issues, area of failure is managing projects mm. if, efficiently and choosing partners. Right. I will tell you that, for example, in First Mutual Health Services, we've just concentrated with one of our partners because we found out after two, three years that this thing was not working. It was not happening. And we lost money. Mm. Yeah, mm. so yes, the only important thing is that you must fail less than the time that you succeed. True. True. Yeah, right. Yeah. We definitely to face setbacks and failure. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing is to dust yourself up and keep on going. Do you read? I mean, actuaries, do you read? We love books on this show, and I would love to hear what uh, book recommendations you okay, have. Yeah, yes, for I do a lot of yeah. reading. Mm. I spend most of my time reading on leadership now, mm. not less on technical matters. What and books are you going to recommend? Uh, I, I will talk to those. Uh, some of the authors of those books were my teachers at London Business School. There's one that's called uh, Why Should Anyone Be Led by You? Ah, sounds by, interesting. By one Rob Goff. 
it's about the true definition of authentic leadership. That's why I'm talking about followers yes. being volunteers. Yes. I, I was really impressed by that professor in terms of what he calls organization development. So I would recommend that it's a must read. Fact, most of my managers have read it. I brought it back into the office. I don't know who is who is with it now, but <laughs> but I'll make a, a a point of getting a copy. Yeah. yeah. Then I read the. Uh, I like one guy called Donald Sau. He wrote a book called the Why Good Commands Go Bad. And our great managers remake them. Mm. The case of a re-entry strategy at Firestone. Right. In the United States. He also wrote one on management, a, a section of the Harvard Business Review called the Managing by Commitments. By Donald So, so if you come to face Major today, mm. we say we manage we manage by commitments across teams. Mm. And then uh, this in South Africa, there's one guy called uh, Raul Koza. Yes, I know Raul very well. Who wrote something about authentic yes. leadership? Yes. I actually have my personal copy of that book mm. by Raul Koza. I like it. And finally, what I'm using now, two mm. books that I've been using a lot in strategy formulation, is one from Good to Great. Yes, by uh, yeah. Mm. yeah, and one called. Start with why by Sinek. Yes. Simon Sinek. Hey. Yes, start with why. Why, how, and what is what creates action in business. Mm. But recently, my daughter bought me a book about uh, she's just finished first year. She came on vacation. She brought me a book uh, which talks about uh, what human minds do, which artificial intelligence can't do. I've forgotten his name. It's very interesting. That's interesting. It yes. gives us hope, isn't it? That yes. the human mind still uh, have, yes. have something it's, to it's do. It's higher than artificial yeah. intelligence. Yeah. yeah. So those are some of the references that I'm looking at. Fascinating books, uh, yes. Douglas. You, you, you might not be aware of this, but you're one of the people that um, viewers who watch this show have been clamoring for. Um, uh, we were coming for you anyway, but uh, the viewers that watch this show uh, every week wanted to us to have you on here and i see why they wanted you here um douglas thank you so much for creating the time to be with us we absolutely love the insights that you've shared and the books that you've shared so thank you for creating the okay, time thank you and joining us allow me um uh, douglas if you mind to address our viewers who are all over the world um, remember, we are a weekly show. We are out on Mondays at 7 a.m. Central African time to ensure that you don't miss out on these quality conversations such as the one I've had with uh, Douglas Water here. I suggest that you subscribe. And when you subscribe, you receive a notification every time we have one of these quality shows. We also invite you to like uh, and to share. We see and we read all your comments. And we've also gone a step further and created podcasts. And I invite you to, you know, go to our website. We now have a website uh, in convowithtrevor.com. Um, and you'll find a lot of uh, podcast platforms there for your listening pleasure. Until next time, cheers to you all.